Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 6, Enemies of the People. In the previous episode, we saw how Sarah's father, who'd been imprisoned in Moscow, was exiled to Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan, where he was living like a free man. In the summer of 1936, Sarah and her mother Gita decided to move the 2,000 miles away from their home to Alma-Ata so the family could all be together. But Zalia Mebel was arrested a second time. Sarah and her mother were with him, when the NKVD knocked on the door late at night, searched the room, and took him away. That was it. He was gone. Sarah took a train back to their barracks room in Krasnogorsk to return to school while her mother stayed in Alma-Ata for another couple of weeks to try and find out what happened to Zalia. When she got back, Gita had no news. Now, she and Sarah had to cope with the emotional reality of their loss. They were still facing the predicament they'd been in since the first arrest. They had a close family member who was a political prisoner of the NKVD. After Alma Ata, they had the added stigma of a second arrest. If there were some tiny possibility that the secret police made a mistake the first time, it wasn't remotely feasible that a second arrest could be shrugged off as an error even though this is what Sarah firmly believed. But this, like her grief, she had to keep to herself. They had another problem, albeit a more quotidian one. Without Zalia's income, Sarah and Gita were poorer than ever. According to Sarah, one of the first things Gita did when she returned from Alma Ata was inform their servant, Dunya, that they couldn't afford to pay her anymore. But Dunya, understandably, had no desire to go back to the boonies of the Russian countryside. She considered herself a member of the family. So they made a deal. In exchange for staying with them in that single barracks room, Dunya would continue to take care of the household, and she'd find a paying job. Dunya was all set to start work at a razor factory, but to get the job, she needed to pass some tests on a razor's chemical composition. This was a problem. Loyal, resourceful Dunya was, in Sarah's words, almost illiterate. I remember teaching her how to read the form. Dunya had to take the exam just to be able to put a stamp on something. That's Russian stupidity. Gita and Sarah found the situation hilarious. When Dunya wasn't looking, Mava and I almost died laughing. Sarah remembered much more about Dunya and the razor exam than she did about everything else that happened in the wake of her father's arrest. As I said last time, she didn't even remember when the second arrest occurred, thinking that in Alma Ata she was a year or two younger 
than her actual age at the time. I was already 15. You were 15? Maybe I was 16. She was 17 in the summer of 1936, which means she still had one more year to go of school. She was a teenager. She went on with her life. On the surface, everything seemed fine. Sarah just kept her mouth shut about her father. Secrets for the Mabel family were, of course, nothing new. As we've seen, Gita kept many things about the past from Sarah. So Sarah went back to finish high school and joined her classmates in the Stalinist form of don't ask, don't tell. My comrades. Yes, she used the Russian word for comrades, tovarishi. My comrades in school either guessed and didn't want to upset me, or maybe they thought that my parents got divorced. I have the impression that Sarah encouraged the second scenario. Divorce was not stigmatized, whereas counter-revolutionary terrorism was. Even though she was friendly with the kids in her class, she couldn't take the risk of sharing her terrible secret. This is something I have trouble understanding. How can you be close to people without talking about something as deep and fundamental as the loss of your parent? Talk about an elephant in the room. But this, Sarah reminded me, was their upbringing. She used the Russian word that indicates training, education, and nurturing. It was their... Воспитание. Her avoidance of the subject of her father didn't prevent Sarah from considering her classmates to have been her close friends, her comrades. They knew each other pretty well. They all started together when the local school in Krasnogorsk expanded from the 6th into the 7th through 10th grades. Sarah and her classmates came in as the first cohort of 7th graders, and they graduated together at the end of the 10th. It was a really small class, 19 kids. You remember exactly how many? I asked Sarah. Yes, and I'll tell you why. We had very good relationships. I asked what else she remembered. Girls and boys studied together. I think she made a point of telling me this because the next generation of students was segregated by sex, thanks to Stalin, who ended co-education during the Second World War. I was curious about what it was like to be in high school in the 1930s. I'd always imagined that Soviet schools were run like military ones, with stern, uniform-clad, attentive students who sat up straight and followed all the rules. No, they were 20th century teenagers and they behaved accordingly. Sarah told me a funny story about a technical drawing class that was held on the school's second floor. The teacher was young and he used to wear a long untucked linen shirt known as a Tolstoy blouse with a big bow tied around the neck. An artist, a young artist, the perfect target for a bunch of obnoxious kids. We decided to cut class one day, probably to go to the movies or something. Our whole class of 19 kids. I told you we were good friends. All of us lowered ourselves down to the first floor by rope. They cut class to go to a movie? They went out a window? They weren't afraid of the consequences? I asked if the school called their parents, only to be reminded that I was being a presumptuous American. What do you mean? Who had a telephone? Surely letters were sent home. I don't remember. They probably yelled at us. She was giggling about this in 2002. 
I only remember how we laughed when we imagined what the tech drawing teacher would do when he came in and found an empty classroom. It's hard to juxtapose this scene with Sarah's domestic reality. Eighth or ninth grade, her father would already have been in Moscow's Butyrka prison. The Stalinist terror was well underway. And yet, here was Sarah with her 18 classmates dissing their poor teacher and cutting class by shimmying out the window down a rope. This wasn't how I pictured the Soviet educational scene in the mid-1930s. But there it is. She and her friends hung out. They did things together like ice skating and cross-country skiing. They used to go dancing. And they did the foxtrot, the tango, and something she called the Boston Waltz. I was really curious about boys and romance. Who was your first love, I asked Sarah. I told her that when I was that age, I was what we used to call boy crazy. She conceded. I thought a lot about boys, Lori. But I'm not used to talking about such things. She wanted these kinds of intimate details to stay off limits. Similarly, she often refused to tell me the surnames of people she was talking about. For Sarah, this was irrelevant information. Revealing it was like performing what she called a strip tease. But she did tell me about a boyfriend she had in her last two or three years of high school. He became a pilot, and he died after the war when he was flying some Soviet delegation to India. By then, he had a wife and two children. I loved him. He probably loved me. And then she asked, Do you want to know who went to bed together? I did, but I couldn't admit it, so I answered, I'm not talking about sex, I'm talking about your dreams. That was my shortcut in Russian for the kind of future she hoped to have. It's not surprising that I didn't get an answer more specific then. I very much wanted to be close to someone, of course. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about this another time. Sadly, we didn't. I could never bring myself to follow up the question of whether she and the pilot had sex. I did, however, ask more about politics. I imagined that the school curriculum was chock full of communist propaganda. By my understanding, Marxist-Leninism was basic to whatever you studied, be it history or botany or razor manufacturing. The insistence on ideological training even became the butt of many Soviet jokes. One joke I heard when I lived in the Soviet Union described the oral exam of a medical student who was stumped by every single question about the bone structure of two skeletons she was shown. Only when one of the frustrated examiners asked her what she had studied in medical school did a light go on in her head. Aha! These must be the skeletons of Marx and Engels. I asked Sarah what she learned about Marxism-Leninism and about the Bolshevik Revolution. She didn't remember. If it was part of the curriculum, it didn't take. Listen, Laurie. Do you really think that at 13 or 15 years old I thought about revolution? My son Perry was 13 when we had this conversation. She added, Your Perry, does he think a lot about the American War for Independence? He did not. These obligatory lessons also meant nothing to her, though Sarah did recall the Marxism-Leninism, as well as the latest version of the history of the Communist Party, 
was taught at the institute she attended after she graduated high school. It was inconceivable to me that she didn't know or remember what I considered to be some of the most important aspects of Soviet culture in the 1930s. I asked what she thought of the huge propaganda campaign to motivate workers to push themselves past their limits. It was named Stokhanovism after Alexei Stokhanov, a miner who exceeded his production quota many times over. I heard the name, but I felt very distant from politics. And again, insistently. I was 16, 17 years old. Surely her parents talked politics while Zalia was still at home. They didn't in front of me. If meat was expensive, maybe they said something. We've seen how their janitor was arrested for remarking that meat was cheaper before the revolution. Complaints were a risky business. And of course, you didn't want to burden your child with words that could bring trouble if they were repeated in the wrong company. But what about Stalin, I asked. Stalin? She didn't remember if they talked about him. I pushed. What did she think of him at the time? Did she think he was a great man? Yes, I thought he was great. They talked about him from morning till night, in the newspapers, in magazines, on the radio. And then, without any prompting from me, she went back to the subject of Zalia. I remember thinking that my father's arrest was probably a mistake. I didn't tie it to Stalin. They made a mistake, I thought. But she couldn't say this to anyone. And as we'll see, the fact of the missing father had everything to do with Sarah's decisions after she finished high school. Graduation at the end of the 10th grade marked the point at which a young person would start work, joining the great Soviet proletariat, or, if tracked for white-collar jobs, going for higher education with a focus on a specific field. There were no schools of liberal arts in the Soviet Union. Everything was designed for training in one direction or another. When Sarah graduated, she chose higher education and started studying at Moscow's Institute of Economic Planning. This pointed her toward a career choice that would have been along the lines of her father's. But she didn't finish. I completed two years of classes, but left before the final third. Why? In the first place, I probably had a weak character. She added that the work was very hard, and she had no friends there. We lived outside the city. It was very far to travel. It was also a financial hardship for Sarah to be in school. Mama and I were very poor. Mama had a small salary. But the fact that she had a father who was an enemy of the people clearly played the most important role. It kept her from becoming a Komsomolka, a member of the Komsomol, the Young Communist League. This was an almost obligatory step for a young adult in the USSR. They kept hassling me. Why aren't you a Komsomolka? Why aren't you a Komsomolka? Sarah said that there had been no pressure in high school to join and that she wasn't alone among her earlier classmates in steering clear of the Communist Party but things were different at the Institute. She admitted that one of the reasons she left was because she was terrified of the public interview required of all Komsomol applicants. In order to get in, I would have had to recount my biography at a huge meeting. In other words, talk about Papa. I didn't want to. I asked her what would have happened if she announced that her father had been arrested. 
On one hand, probably nothing. Sarah cited for me a famous 1935 quote attributed to Stalin. Children don't answer for their parents. Stalin did make one comment, one time, at one meeting, about how a son does not answer for his father. But this was never official policy. Sons and daughters often answered for their fathers and mothers in Stalin's USSR. Still, the phrase became part of what historian Sheila Fitzpatrick called Soviet folklore. It makes sense that the offspring of citizens who'd been arrested as traitors seized on the words as a shred of hope for their own survival. Sometimes the secret police left them alone. Other times, they didn't. Sarah certainly hoped the exemption of a child from a parent's guilt was real. This meant she would have been off the hook at a Komsomol meeting. But on the other hand, she might not have been. And she knew this. And there was no way she was going to risk the humiliation. To tell Komsomol members about her father would have opened up the question of why he'd been arrested. Even though she knew her father wasn't guilty, she couldn't say such a thing in public because it would have amounted to accusing the NKVD of having made a mistake. And as she reminded me, The NKVD never made a mistake. Plus, they took him two times, not just once. Double jeopardy. So Sarah dropped out of the Institute her basic ticket to Soviet success. She also kept a couple of answers at the ready for people who would, invariably, ask her why she hadn't joined the Komsomol. If it was someone she knew and trusted, she'd leave it at, I don't want to. But if it was someone she didn't trust, she'd give the standard, humble Soviet excuse. I don't think I'm worthy. This was apparently the go-to answer for anyone who avoided party membership. It implied that one was working on becoming worthy. And when the cherished goal was reached, one would, of course, join up. Sarah supplied me with the sarcastic punchline, the one she couldn't say, for how long she expected it to take before she was worthy of joining the Communist Party. A hundred years. I pushed. How did all this affect you? What would Komsomol membership have meant? Sarah replied more seriously. I would have been like everyone else. Being outside kept me separate. Almost 100% of young people, almost everyone, was in the Komsomol. For her, this wasn't about socialism or Stalinism. I didn't think about politics. I just wanted to be like everyone else. But Sarah's withdrawal from the Soviet path to upward mobility and inclusion didn't block all the negative consequences of having a father who was an enemy of the people. As a Soviet citizen, she constantly had to fill out forms, all of which asked for information about her social origins, a category that was central to a regime that always invoked the notion of class war. Sarah fudged her answers on these when it came to Zalia, referring to her father as a clerk rather than as an economist. Better that he was some kind of minor bureaucrat. No doubt she lived in fear of discovery. As for her mother, Gita also found a way to skirt the issue. She would simply tell people that her husband was in free exile, omitting the minor detail of that second and final arrest. Didn't people guess the truth? I asked Sarah. This provoked an uncharacteristic expression of outrage. 
How could they know Tfu? To hell with them. But the consequences were very real. Her mother became toxic socially. Friends cut off contact for fear of guilt by association. Except for their relationship with the Kugels, we were completely alone. Even two of Gita's brothers in Moscow abandoned them. I asked Sarah to tell me more about this, and she admitted that the estrangement was mutual. Mama was proud, and they were scared. No one was guilty. Chaya Mebel, Zalia's brother who'd recently escaped Hitler's Germany with his wife and two kids, and who'd reunited with his brother's family in Moscow, dropped Sarah and Gita like hot potatoes. Sarah had no contact with them until she was in the U.S., and we found Chaim's son in a Google search. I'll tell you more about that family reunion in a future episode. Even though Gita suffered socially, she fortunately wasn't fired from her job. Sarah was also able to find work when she quit the Institute. Her first application was for a teaching assistantship at an art school where someone she knew worked as a teacher. Sarah went to visit, and her acquaintance there took her into a classroom where they encountered a totally naked man. Sarah apparently hadn't been warned that this was a life-drawing class. She decided that her teacher acquaintance was a moron. It was time to look elsewhere. Gita stepped in. A doctor at her hospital had a relative who was the temporary director of the USSR Seismology Institute of the Academy of Sciences, a venerable institution that had recently been moved to Moscow from Leningrad. With the director's help, Sarah got a job as the low-level laboratory assistant for one of those people whose full names she was reluctant to supply. She referred to her by her name and patronymic, Natalia Agapovna. Natalia Agapovna was a figure straight out of Russian history, having been taught by Prince Boris Galitsyn in the pre-revolutionary era at St. Petersburg's Higher Women's Courses. Not acquainted with the wonders of Google, Sarah had no idea how easy it was to come up with a surname for someone Russian Wikipedia identifies as one of the founders of Soviet seismology. It was Natalia Agapovna Linden, born in 1887, who served as a mentor to the young woman she affectionately called Sarochka. She was a wonderful teacher. As we say, she was a teacher from God. That Natalia Agapovna taught me everything, not only taught me about seismology, but about how to work. Everything I know about seismology, I know from her. Sarah started as a lab assistant. At some point in her career trajectory, she became a senior lab assistant and then an engineer. By the time she retired, she had worked herself all the way up to the highest level. And she did it without joining the Komsomol and the Communist Party, and all without finishing her higher education. I retired with the title of senior engineer. She thinks she was the only one at her institute to have made it to senior engineer without having completed her degree. Sarah's labor booklet, an official document that tracked her job history, attests to Sarah's rise through the Institute's ranks. I asked what she remembered about her job before the war, and she told me how difficult things became when Stalin issued a decree with stiff penalties for lateness. Sarah referred to it with the word ukaz, 
a word more often used to indicate something decreed by a Russian emperor. At the end of 1938, as part of an attempt to impose more discipline on the labor force, the regime criticized, and I quote, shirkers, idlers, and self-seekers. Management was to fire anyone who was absent without a valid reason and was to reprimand employees who were late for work or added time to their lunch breaks or went home early. Three times in a month, and you were out. Four times in two months, and you were out. As of 1940, criminal penalties awaited people who arrived more than 20 minutes late for their job. Sarah had a three-hour round-trip commute between Krasnogorsk and the Seismology Institute, and she had to leave time for delays on public transportation and for bad weather. She was proud to inform me that, nevertheless, she was never late. She admitted, though, that the threat was horrible. It also helped that there was always a bed for her at the apartment in central Moscow of their good friends, the Kugels. She could stay over whenever she liked. Sarah was so eager to tell me two stories about the lateness decree that she wrote them down in anticipation of that day's interview so as not to forget. One was about an important scholar at her institute who made a big show of his daily arrival. She got up to show me the way he would pace by the front door. He wasn't tall, and he walked with a cane. He would arrive a few minutes early and walk back and forth by the entrance, checking his watch. Only when it was exactly the time to start work, on the dot, would he enter. Sarah giggled. Not a second earlier. She had another story about the decree involving a professor at the Institute who wore a uniform at work. This, too, cracked her up. One time, he overslept, and he was absolutely terrified of being late. She interrupted this story to describe how, at that time, men wore white long underwear as pajamas, instructing me to look up the English equivalent of the Russian word to make sure I got everything right. This professor was in such a hurry that one day he showed up in his long underwear. He put on his black great coat over his pajamas, that white shirt and those white drawers. He stuffed his clothes in a briefcase, put on his shoes without socks, and showed up at our institute just like that. But more soberly, she commented in relation to his panic. Can you imagine how terrified people were because of this new decree? In June 1941, Sarah was making plans to start learning English. On June 22nd, she heard an announcement on the radio about something important coming up. It was a Sunday. Sarah, who was lying in bed, feared that the regime was about to issue another decree, one that would extend the length of the workday. She said this to her mother, who, of course, in their single room was right at hand. Just when I wanted to study, We'll have to work even longer. But the radio announcement had nothing to do with the workday. It was a proclamation that Nazi Germany, their ally since the 1939 non-aggression pact, had just attacked the Soviet motherland. Next time, we'll talk about the war and Sarah's and Gita's harrowing evacuation to Siberia.
Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. Robert A. Emmons Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yer Yona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FDEP Beat. Additional music for our series is by Poddington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavatsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice. <laughs>